Expression is one of the most powerful tools we have. A voice, a pen, a keyboard. The real change which must give to people throughout the world their human rights must come about in the hearts of people. We must want our fellow human beings to have rights and freedoms which give them dignity. Article 19 is the voice in the room. Hey, we're back with Miso, Nate, and Jason. We have had such a wonderful conversation so far, and we have so much more to cover with the three of you. And I'm really grateful that you've come back for part two of our conversation and to keep this going. For context, previously we've touched broadly on technology and accessibility and individuality. And now I very purposefully want to intersect all of these, first with a broad cultural question about the use of preferred pronouns. So at Tamman, we have developed what we're calling house rules or rules of thumb. And one of those rules is not to make assumptions about pronouns when it comes to alternative text, specifically with stock photography or things that we just don't know. We don't want to make assumptions. And we touched on this a little bit earlier in our last episode, but rather we want to use non-gendered identifying information like professional or they, for example. So Miso, I want to start with you. When you're engaging with visual information, what is your preference in terms of that information that you're seeking? How would you like that presented to you? Would an image lacking gender identification or pronoun, do you feel like that would hinder your experience? To answer the last question, like would it hinder you know, my experience to not have gender identified in the description? I think the answer depends on context. Uh, I mean, there could be so many different contexts, but I think my kind of personal preference would be that if the gender is known to the person who's describing the image, like you know that for a fact that this is a woman identifying person, this is somebody who's you know non-binary. If you know that information, I want that to be given to me. Obviously, there are instances where we don't know that. Nobody really knows. Like if you just grab an image off of World Wide Web, you could, you know, end up with some image of a person that you don't know the gender, how they would identify this person on the image would identify themselves. I think in such case, and if it is relevant, just give the description that will be relevant. So for example, you know, I think if it's something like a clothing uh, website or something, and you know, if you're selling a kind of gendered, socially gendered item or something, like I want you to give what kind of body size like this person has, like where does this particular clothing fall onto, you know, if this person has a broad shoulder versus like a petite body and things like that. I think that would be very relevant for me to understand how this particular clothing item might be fitting to this model. But like another context might be, you know, if people are sitting at a park or something and the point of the description is more about painting that scenery of people sitting around at a park hanging out rather than like at the individual descriptions of like this person's appearance, then I don't think that's really necessary, let alone the gender pronoun. So I think whatever image description it may be, um, think about what the main point that needs to be conveyed is. And if the describer makes a judgment that describing the appearance in fine detail would be helpful, then 
I want the information to be given. If it is not as relevant, then I think that would be fine. Yeah, that makes very good sense. And I appreciate that answer. I'm going to spin it straight to this particular conversation right now. And this is Marty again. We are recording using Zoom. And I have a question in a moment about Zoom and its similar types of platforms as well. None of us on this call, except for you, Miso, has their preferred pronouns listed. So if I could put Mike, Amanda, Nate, Jason on the spot a little bit, myself as well, why? Why didn't any of us, knowing that we were going to have a conversation on this, why didn't anyone besides me so put our preferred pronouns? I will just, as a week out, I will say that Nate and I are sharing a computer on his account, and my account does have my personal pronouns on it. That would be my answer. So you're throwing Nate under the bus is what you're doing right now. That's well done. (laughs) Nate, any rebuttal there? Or Mike or Amanda, I can bring you in too. We'll save the rebuttal for when we stop recording. But I will say (laughs) that, you know, I... Having already spoken to everyone on this call, I already feel like I have some understanding of people's preferred pronouns coming into this conversation. So I didn't feel like it was necessary to front that information, but it certainly can never hurt to put it in. Also, we you know just popped into this call. So what's currently listed as my name is my default. I've been too lazy to go <laughs> and change it to add the pronouns, to be totally honest with you. So I'm going to own up to that. This is Mike. My answer, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm almost more intentional about it. I pretty much never put my pronouns in there. But it's not because I have some sort of moral objection to doing so, but rather... It doesn't matter to me (laughs) so much personally, whether people get it right or wrong. I think I care when other people care, but for me, it's not something that, like a large part of my identity is not wrapped up in my pronouns. And so maybe as a very minor, like an extremely minor form of like civil disobedience, I don't do it, (laughs) if that makes sense. It does make sense. Amanda? I'm kind of here and there, kind of with Nate, like it's not in my uh, default name, but perhaps it should be. I also feel like I tend to add it more often if I'm like on a call with a group of people that I've never met before. So I'm not sure if that's like the right way of thinking about it. Like maybe it should be, maybe it should be the default. Maybe I should just change my default name. So I never have to think twice about it. So it's just there. I think it comes back to what Miso, you brought up earlier. It's context, right? If I hear you correctly, Nate and Amanda especially, is that there's something about context that matters. But it got me thinking also about, Mike, you kind of brought this up a little bit, this idea of divisiveness and that you might be making a statement. And I'm wondering about if there's some kind of values signaling that pronouns have become so that you're trying to, some pretentious, some people might be seeing it as, look at me, I'm a progressive. We talked a little bit about in the last episode, rainbow washing could have an element of that. And so my question to the group here, anyone can pick up on this one, is are pronouns and putting your pronouns in place like social media or or wherever you can and making it your default, is it kind of like driving a Prius? Are you making a statement about the fact that driving a hybrid is very, very important to me and I'm a better environmentalist than you with your big SUV? So this is Jason. To hop in, I guess, with with my thoughts on it, I would say that You know, if that's the intent that you're doing, then obviously that's the intent that you're doing. Depending on how it lands to other people and the impact that it has, that's on them. I would say that it's more important to me personally that, you know, even if 90% of the people think that by me putting my personal pronouns on an email signature or on my Slack or something, that that would come across as 
pretentious or, you know, like virtue signaling or whatever, I think that it's more important that if I'm in a space with somebody that actually has personal pronouns that might not be quote unquote, you know, intuitive or might be something that actually matters to that person, then I would rather be demonstrating that they are in a space that they should feel comfortable having that listed or that they're in a space where some people actually value that. This is Nate. I will also jump in here. I think there's like value in, there's a lot of existing research and work, particularly in like organizational leadership that uses the terminology of like espoused and enacted values, right? So companies have to start at the top, kind of deciding what their values are going to be for the institution and speaking them into existence first before the change can happen that allows that value to be enacted from like a UDL, Universal Design for Learning approach, right? So including pronouns in an email signature in and of itself is not enough to say I have a fully gender inclusive institution that I work for. I am a champion of trans rights and feminism just because I put he, him below my name, but language and culture change there are clear ties between the two. And if you want the culture of an institution to change, it starts with the language that you use because so much of our reality is made up of the words that we choose, which is why I love my job as an English teacher. It's better to have a step in the right direction than no step at all. And certainly if you want to be an an equitable leader, you should also be keeping your eyes and ears open for now that I've taken that step, how are people receiving it? And if it's something that really does genuinely matter to you and to your institution, then you need to be prepared to have conversations around it when you do receive pushback, because there will be some. And so just as Marty did with this question to some extent, like if you notice someone doesn't have their pronouns in their signature, there's no harm in asking them why not. Because if that's a value you're setting for your group, then that's something that you should be willing to uphold. Um, This is me. So, so, you know, on top of kind of echoing what Jason and Nate said, and going maybe alluding to a bit earlier, I can say why... I decided to keep my Zoom default name to include my preferred gender pronouns. So one is that I have a name that is not common in the English-speaking majority population. You know, I've like grown up in this kind of world, so I kind of have an understanding of like what names are more, you know, typically given to a female at birth or male at birth kind of person. So one reason is that I, I like just want to clearly like tell folks that in case my name may not be clear, I am a cisgender, you know, woman. So in, in the fact that I'm a cisgender person, I have a privilege that I present as a female. I sound like a female person and I identify as a female person or woman. But you know, that's not always the case. And I like don't want to be like making wrong assumptions. As you know, I want to minimize that kind of experience and I want to like also give people opportunity to minimize causing that phenomenon to happen to them. And like I have one specific instance, like I don't even know when it was probably after like I finished college, I was frantically applying for many jobs. And one of the hiring manager's name was like very androgynous. And I like didn't under like I was like, oh, should I say like you know, Mr. or like Miss. I like, I I tried to like look this person up online to kind of find out, you know, how they identify, like whether, and this was like not really when preferred gender pronoun was like 
as wide as now. I ended up not being able to find this person's like gender identification, I don't think. I don't remember how like I addressed this letter, but like I, I remember spending like probably more time than I should have trying to figure out how this person wants to be addressed in terms of, you know, their gender pronouns. So I think, yeah, like it's good aside from all the kind of progressiveness and values and whatnot, like those are really important too. And I think by giving your gender pronoun up front, you can also help other people to like let them know like so they don't have to make assumptions about you. That's excellent. And it proves again that when we do the right thing, especially you see this all the time in classrooms, Nate and Miso, that when you when you educate to the edges it captures everyone. I mean, that's a great example of in a more global world where we don't necessarily have the context for a particular name, it helps everybody regardless of whether it's a trans or value singling or anything else like that. So that's wonderful. Amanda, I know you want to jump in with a question. This is kind of built off of what Mike was talking about and where we were going, I think. So as far as like creating like an inclusive workplace and like a safe culture, like other than adding gender pronouns to your email or Slack messages, like what are some other things that we can do as colleagues and leaders in the space to create that culture, especially when we're in a mostly remote working environment. <laughs> Anybody want to handle that one? That was such a great question, Amanda. And everyone's like, see, I'm fortunate because I get the Zoom call here. I can see everyone's like, you know, rubbing their chins and thinking about it and not <laughs> sure. So I'm going to spin this over to Nate and Jason. Can do you guys want to take a first crack at this? Sure. I would start by building off of my previous answer and, and you know, continue to emphasize how like changing language is the first step toward changing the culture of a workplace. But the culture of a workplace, just like Miso has already brought into this conversation as well, is contextual. And the position of each individual within that workplace is also contextual. And so it's sort of, I would say, primarily the responsibility of supervisors to sort of be aware of who's on their team and building in routines that allow them to keep a finger on the pulse of the people in the workplace, while also acknowledging that there may be parts of an employee's life that they don't feel comfortable sharing at work and, you know, not feeling as though as a supervisor, you have any right to that information if a person chooses not to share it, right? So it's really just a matter of keeping your ears open in that sense. I'd also say in terms of like, from a design standpoint, like web design, if you're creating any sort of like form or any way of collecting data where gender is a marker that you're going to be acknowledging, make it a text box. Don't make it a checkbox because a lot of times... I see on forms, you know, gender identity, you know, optional, you don't have to select it, but the options will be male, female, or trans, trans slash non-binary. And you can identify as two of those things, right? You can be a trans male, you can be a trans female. So I have friends who have in the past not known how to answer a question like that. So all senses, I mean, it makes it harder to clean up your data a lot of the time, but if you're looking for people to self-identify along any social identity marker, race, ethnicity, gender, it's usually better than not to allow it to be an open input so people can choose to identify themselves however they feel is best. There's been a lot of discourse around the difference between the term Black and the term African-American for a similar reason, right? Some people choose not to identify as African-American, allow people to identify themselves however they see fit. Nate, it's as if you're reading my mind. There was an article 
show notes that one of my colleagues posted in our Slack channel called Designing for Identity. And it was written by a woman named Emma Siegel at Google. And her preferred solution as she was evaluating several social media platforms was just that, a custom field that allows you to put whatever you want. Because for her, in the article, she goes on to talk about she actually does a mix of things. So her preferences aren't usually there because they're grouped in a particular way, in a more common way. And she's like, that just doesn't fit me. So I have Jason and Mike, I really want to bring you in on a technical side of things here because we then were having a conversation of custom fields. What's the accessibility issues that you may have with a custom field versus radial dials or drop down menus and things like that? I don't necessarily see it as an accessibility issue, although we do have to make those things accessible. But I think you've kind of crossed over that thin line between accessibility and inclusion, right? So the idea is we need to make inclusive forms where the language in the forms is available to people to describe themselves, right? But regardless of what the values are in that particular pull down or the checkboxes or whatever they are, I mean, they do need to be accessible. Make sure I'm getting the question right there. You are. And what we okay. talked about was then I joked, we have to figure out what we do with error messages when you have custom fields, because error messages, as we know, can be particularly challenging for screen readers and other things if it shows up out of order or does it need to be in line? And we haven't really completely. Well, I think what you're getting at, Marty, and this isn't unique to an identity issue or an inclusion issue, but rather poor accessibility further marginalizes people that are already on the margins, <laughs> if that makes sense. So if you are you know, trying to choose a particular identity for yourself, be it by race or by gender or something else, and that form is inaccessible, you one step even further removed because you can't even work around that particular problem. I think that maybe that's what you're trying to get at. So it really just comes down to the fact that it becomes doubly important for people that want to express themselves more, but maybe are also pairing that with a particular challenge with getting that form completed. We have to design for accessibility, but that accessibility sometimes is an inclusive design is really where it's at. And But it's another higher order level of thinking and design and building and testing and rolling out and understanding users, right? Jason, I'll turn it over to you if you want to add anything to that. I'm not sure if what I'm going to say is going to answer your question. I think it's more of just a side note, which is that, again, I work, you know, in the travel space. And I think that if you think about various airlines and things like that, they have forms. A typical form field is your gender. I think that there are more constraints for a form field like gender, depending on the type of form. So I would assume that an airline has more limitations on the options for gender because they maybe have to match it with your ID that's with the U.S. government or something. And that's how you end up going on a plane and flying. I don't really know under the hood how that works. I also know that maybe a year or two ago, American Airlines and Delta had added nine binary as an option onto their gender form field. And that was pretty unprecedented at the time. I'm not sure how many airlines have followed suit with that. But it's, uh, yeah, I think depending on the type of company that and the type of space that it's operating in, I think that you're going to face even more limitations, even if the company wants to be more inclusive. I think they just might be operating within a space that by nature of laws is exclusionary. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, Jason, because I think it isn't just about U.S. travel, right? When you talk about international travel, there are plenty of countries where being trans 
transgendered or gay or of a particular ethnic origin is illegal, punishable by imprisonment or other, you know, or worse. And so it's hard for companies that are trying to operate in international spaces complying with all those laws. They have to kind of weave a fine thread through all of that to make it work. And there's a lot of systems. I mean, I think in the travel industry, you talk about these aggregation systems where they have to talk to so many other systems and so many different companies all at the same time and have to be on the same platform or at least compatible platforms, right? You kind of end up with probably what is like a very slow to change kind of paradigm. Right. I think that's what you're I think that's what you're getting at, right, Jason, is that these things yeah, aren't they, 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 they don't move fast. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, they don't always move fast. Well, you know, Marty, if I may, I, I want to kind of turn back to something we were talking about earlier because this idea of moving fast, right? We're a small business and one of the things at Tam and that we've embraced is making it okay to make mistakes with each other. And so we've talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it from the gender pronouns perspective, but we certainly talked about it around like personal preferences around physical contact or sort of things we're okay with talking about at work or foods that are in the kitchen, things like that, right? And the idea is that like, we're always trying to say, hey, it's okay. We shouldn't be all, you know, knotted up in our stomachs about how we talk to each other or refer to each other. But once somebody has expressed an opinion that we all respect that. And I think that that's kind of the biggest things because I think one of the things that I first ran into when I first started going to conferences, and maybe the conferences I go to are just a little more progressive than most, you know, I started seeing people put their personal pronouns, even where like some of the places I was going were giving stickers that were badged with color and pronouns you put right on your like attendee badge. And, you know, this was like a few years ago, and I'm starting to see it a lot. And at first I was a little uncomfortable. I'm like, I know how I identify, but I don't see everybody doing it. Am I supposed to do this? What if I don't do it? I was like very nervous because I'm like, I don't know if this conference follows the rules we follow at the office, <laughs> Right around like it's okay to be wrong about this with a person and once or maybe even twice right after that maybe it becomes on purpose and you kind of address it but i just wanted to kind of get everyone's take on what do you think about like is it okay to make this mistake and how should people feel if they're kind of new to this topic because i have a feeling that although it's not new to us on this call because we're trying to solve for this issue like trying to like renormalize or to normalize a new language and a new way to to sort of interact with each other how should people that are relatively new to it like feel about it mike would you mind just clarifying like what you mean by mistake like do you, do you mean accidentally calling somebody by the wrong pronoun yeah. or identifying yourself as like the incorrect pronoun? I'm not worried about identifying myself as the incorrect pronoun. I think most of us understand what the pronouns are, although there may be a few that are popping up that I don't know what they mean right now, but that's okay, right? Somebody will tell me when they want me to use it. I think I'm more thinking about if I call somebody by the wrong pronoun, I've misidentified them. Maybe, you know, me so if I don't know what your name, what a typical, you know, male or female name is in Korean, I may make the wrong assumption. So how can I feel okay? Like, how should I feel about making that mistake the first time with you if I, if I didn't know you and I wrote you a letter and said, dear sir? Okay, this is Misa speaking. And I think to answer like that very last question, you know, if somebody wrote me a letter, said Mr. Elm Kwok or something, I don't know, I probably would just think that they just didn't know. And I probably... Sometimes I remove my email signature depending on the like, situations, but I'll like have it there and maybe I'll like drop it in twos to tell them, you know, if this person is somebody like that I've never interacted with. But I think to get to your original question of like, how should you feel if you make a mistake, it's particularly misgendering somebody or like using a wrong pronoun. Yeah, I think especially like with folks who use 
uh, who prefer to use they and almost exclusively, if not exclusively, um, just they, them, theirs, while like having a particular gender presenting name or appearance. I haven't been in that particular situation of like being the person who gets misgendered, uh, misused my preferred pronoun. So I, I can't really say like how I would feel, but I think, you know, as somebody who's doing that, one, I, th- I think it's important to feel like, yes, it's okay to make a mistake. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. And two, I think just being more conscious about paying more attention to like, if they have like, uh, prefer gender pronoun signatures or by their name and I think on a related note if you know somebody whose preferred pronouns are they them theirs and if you see other people not using that pronoun for this person and you know I think you can give them like a gentle nudge to say oh hey by the way so and so prefers to use they them theirs I think that would be helpful in this context so I think Miso's right on the money there. And I think, Mike, and correct me if I'm wrong, I hear in your question sort of a focus on like, how should I feel if I find myself in that situation, right? Where I've misgendered someone, right? And I think with all due love and respect that like that's the wrong question to ask because what you're actually doing there is centering yourself in an interpersonal interaction where you're actually trying to create and foster inclusion and belonging for the other person, right? So you made yourself the subject of the question, but the question should really be about the other person. And I've found in my life, in situations where I've misgendered trans or non-binary friends, a lot of the time they end up feeling more uncomfortable if I start beating myself up over having misgendered them than they would if I just acknowledged, oops, I made a mistake and move on, right? So I think we have this tendency in American culture, especially to want to apologize and see how we can like repair harm that we've caused. And with something like misgendering or microaggressions, like comments that you might make off the cuff, the best way to say you're sorry is to check it in yourself and to not do it next time. So you could apologize to that person and that totally depends on the instance of harm that was caused and the person you're talking to and your relationship to them. But by and large, the thing that the other person would most likely want is just to make sure that doesn't happen again, right? So part of that also just starts with start noticing in your head when you assign pronouns to other people or other things, even like babies, right? Somebody introduces you to their child and they're wearing blue clothes. You might instinctively ask, oh, how old is he, right? If you don't yet know a child's identity or you don't, if you haven't asked the parents that, then maybe start correcting in yourself, like use them until you know, right? Like how old are they? Because that is a perfectly fine way to ask the question until you've had that information presented to you. Same thing with like pets, right? If you see somebody playing with their dog, just start noticing that in yourself and trying to correct it in situations where the stakes are very, very low. So that when you find yourself in that situation with somebody who chooses, who wants to be identified by a certain set of pronouns that you might be less familiar with, you already have some practice using it in other contexts. This is Jason. And I think that, you know, there are obviously other use cases and scenarios to kind of go off of what Nate was saying at the end, where, you know, some that are more common, right? You know, people refer to their partners or something. People don't say, you know, like my husband or my wife as much. And maybe that's because they also don't want to presume if they're going to ask somebody else like, oh, you know, you don't want to presume that somebody is heterosexual or like homosexual, you know, somebody that has a wife or a husband. So just saying like, 
asking about somebody's partner or something would kind of take that assumption away from it. The same way that, you know, if you don't know if somebody identifies with he series pronouns or she series pronouns or something totally different, just going with something that could be more all encompassing for any of those scenarios. I'm not going to equate it with something like Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays. Nate, I really appreciate you sort of calling me to task on making the question about like the problem, like about me as opposed to about making about the other person, because that's a really good observation. I think where the question that I was asking was coming from, and I, and I want to come back to it for a second. There's something that is also not acknowledged, right? Which is this idea of ungendering or to allow people to set their own preferences for it is relatively new, right? And I don't know how old all of you are, but I'm guessing you're a lot younger than me, right? And I'm a lot younger than a lot of my clients, okay? <laughs> As the people that I'm working with, right? And so we have like a lifetime of language history and learning that has to be either unlearned. And so it's really hard for those of us who spend a lifetime using something like gender, and there's more than just gender, right? Just picking on that one for a second, using gender pronouns to make something more interpersonal, right? To make more of a connection because I'm acknowledging more of the identity, right? But there's shorthand for that in culture and language. Now, what we're saying together on this call is that we're going to do it differently now and we want to teach everybody how to do it differently. And so in essence, when I'm in a situation where I know that I don't know everybody's gender and I have to figure that out and it's potentially a large group of people, it kind of does become about me all of a sudden, right? Like I have to like put myself in check and I have to wonder, am I going to be sitting here offending everybody? Or can I just use the language that I know and allow people to correct me when I've got it wrong and be okay with being wrong occasionally, modifying my behavior, but, you know, as I go, but do I need to be worried about it in advance? And I, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at, because the question isn't so much for me. I know how I'm dealing with it already, because I'm already kind of a certain bit down this journey. But I know when I talk to other people and I want to educate them on this, and I want to use this podcast or my own conversations with them to, to guide them, what should I be counseling people to say, you shouldn't be stressed out about this? Or you really do need to like spend some time to engage with this in advance, because if you don't, you're really going to be flubbing interpersonal conversations. Like, help me out here. What am I supposed to tell them? I think that's a very real reaction. And I also felt like I understood the intent of your question. So I, I hope for listeners of the podcast, we know there's like no bad blood here. I was giving, you know, like feedback given. It's all good. It's all good. Man. Now, I also have feedback from Marty about his hatred of Priuses, but that'll come later as well. But I think the stakes of this conversation also, we should acknowledge that part of why it might feel as difficult as it does is because while these, you know, interactions we're talking about where we're using preferred pronouns seem so minute, they are a reflection of a broader system in which we know people who identify as trans and non-binary are still facing incredibly high rates of violence. Actually, last year, 2020 in the United States, according to the Human Rights Campaign, was the deadliest year on record for transgender Americans. 44 trans people were murdered, and primarily trans people of color. So we've all heard those statistics. They've all come up for us in some conversation at some point. And so we all have this lingering awareness of the society we find ourselves in. I have a tendency to carry that pressure around sometimes, right? To feel as though I am responsible for white American culture as a white American and cis culture as a cisgender man with male privilege in this society that is also incredibly sexist and misogynistic. And all of those things start to weigh you down and you start to feel like Atlas holding up the sky. And if you just take a step back and just try to like take that weight off your shoulders and focus in on like the interaction that's like directly happening in the moment, I think it just becomes a lot easier, right? 
So as you start to create a routine for yourself of becoming aware of moments when you are assuming an identity marker about another person, you can start to correct your own thought processes and nobody else needs to be involved in that process. That's happening inside your own head so that it doesn't become an active conscious thought every time you enter a space of, I now need to learn the gender of every person in this room, but rather as you're talking to somebody, it'll just naturally flow in conversation. That that's something when you meet someone for the first time, you should ask and try to hold on to it, but it may take some time and that's okay. And you can also acknowledge that for the other person. You can say, hey, I forgot what you told me last time I interacted with you. Could you please remind me how you identify? Like normal human decency has started to feel for me like it's becoming increasingly difficult in a society where everyone is oppressed in some capacity. But actually, if you take a step back and think about it, it should flow pretty naturally how you choose to interact with someone and the other person will understand in that interaction if as they get to know you better where you're coming from because that's just how we as humans interact with each other so i think like sometimes putting that extra pressure on yourself and beating yourself over the back over those interactions tends to make things more uncomfortable for everyone involved when really if you just take it minute by minute and moment by moment and we all flub, you know, Mike, I also heard you use the language of I'm pretty far along on this journey, but I also think it's wrong to think of a journey of inclusivity as a straight line, right? We're, we're existing in an orb and we're swimming around and there are days where we didn't get enough sleep the night before, so we forget to think of something in a conversation. So we always have to be constantly checking ourselves on these approaches, but rather than thinking of it just as a linguistic thing, think of it as an interpersonal dynamics issue of just how am I treating this other person? And if I am a person who values treating people with kindness and respect, then by setting that value for myself, again, as fast and enacted, if that becomes your focus, then your behavior will follow suit. But I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in on that. This is Marty. Nate, I appreciate everything that you just said there, especially the end around that this is an interpersonal relationship situation where we're floating around this orb because so often we find ourselves a part of the outrage machine. And it's one of the reasons why I podcasts so much, because we can have a long form conversation about a heavy topic or, you know, the idea of just having conversations with colleagues, coworkers, friends, relatives in a way where you know them or you know enough of them where you can have a more thoughtful conversation. I would encourage everyone wherever they are listening to this, step away from the outrage machine because that's not changing mindsets. That's not fixing any of the issues we have in our world. And so I, I just really want to appreciate what you just said about this being interpersonal. At Tamman, we talk a lot about digital accessibility, obviously. One of those paradigms that we talk about is mindsets changing skill sets. It's not dissimilar to any of this. But how do you change mindsets? It takes time and it takes building relationships with people, getting them to trust, getting them to understand who you are and why you're saying what you're saying before they'll even begin to maybe rethink how they approach design, for example. And this is a little bit more important because of some of the statistics that you mentioned, but it's not dissimilar at all. I'm mindful of sharing the air here, but I just wanted to make one more quick anecdotal comment, which is just, I also appreciated Mike acknowledging his age and the ways in which uh, being an old fart can uh, affect the way that you enter conversations like this. And genuinely, like 
objectively make it more difficult to change mindsets, right? There's plenty of psychological research that backs that up as well. And with that, there comes an understanding too, and I'm happy to back this up as someone who works with 11-year-olds every day, that the rising generation is the most globally aware in history, right? They are growing up in an age where they are constantly exposed to other people's perspectives and an understanding of the ways in which their own individual identities and the way that they treat other people as a result of those identities have real impacts on the world around them. And so I take a lot of hope from the fact that like, look, you know, a lot of us are on the way out, some of us sooner than others, but we should be doing the best we can to start prioritize young voices in these conversations. When you hear young people advocating for certain things, don't write it off as you're young, you are inexperienced, you don't yet know that the realities of the world you're entering Because in fact, there's perhaps no one more aware of the realities of the world that they're entering than the young people who have their finger immediately on the pulse of their generation through their phones. First of all, I'll say Marty and I are the same age, so it's a race to the finish for us. But I think... I think what you just said there is really cool. I am actually very jealous of a lot of what people that are coming out of like high school or college, the, like in the last five years, like some of the benefits they have of being sort of already indoctrinated to have a more open mind, you know, to some of these things. Now, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. It's how it feels, maybe just because I'm getting old and everybody seems so much cooler than me. But I think the idea that, well, I'm sorry, you know, Marty's laughing. Everyone's always been cooler than me. I've never been cool. So let me just say that. Total nerd. You're a total, yeah, total nerd. nerd. I'll hold it with pride. I do. I absolutely. Near and dear. But I think it's not so much that I'm looking at young people coming into the workforce or coming into my company saying, kid, you don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm going to show you the ropes. Uh, yeah. You, you don't really know how to fit in here. You, you'll learn. It's more like I have envy, you know, or at least maybe that's too strong of a word, but certainly like there's a bit of admiration I have for the openness that they have that I'm now teaching myself to do. Like uh, for instance, for the past couple of years, I've really been trying to remove gender from when I talk to a group of people and say, hey, folks, thanks for joining, as opposed to, hey, guys, or hey, guys and girls, or whatever. You know, it's a tough thing. And I'll tell you, it's like, go one month and just ungender your group speech. It's almost impossible for somebody in their 40s. Like, it, it takes a lot of effort. It's so much harder than I thought it was going to be to do as, as an exercise. And I think when I did that, it it definitely gave me some lasting habits, but I'm kind of curious for those of you that are younger here, has that been a challenge for you or is it part of your natural speech that you've kind of adopted through your like later school years? Marty, even you know, since we're the same age, have you found that difficult too? Yes, especially guys, I will say. I have struggled not calling people guys and I'm constantly going guys and gals and oh, like and I notice it every single time and so that's uh that's my burden to bear you know language is I think habitual and it takes effort to change it takes intention to change so might as well get started now this is me so it doesn't have to be a part of the podcast or not but one thing that I'll say is that also you know I think the way this conversation has gone it, we're kind of just speaking into this like dominant english speaking world and you know that's fine because it, i'm presuming like most of the people who listen to this podcast are living in this kind of environment where english is a, a major language that's spoken a prevalent language that's being used one observation that like i've made ever since entering college and then being exposed to you know the world of gender pronouns and gender inclusivity in the language 
linguistic sense is that how much gendering there is in English language. You know, for example, the terms like you guys or like having to have that pronoun in Korean, you can make a conversation without alluding to like a gender pronoun ever, like for most of the conversation. There are the different nuances in Korean language, for example, like the way I would address my siblings, the terminology I would use would depend on my gender identity and my siblings' gender identity. That's not really true in the English language. The reason why I bring that up is because I, I think depending on one's kind of primary cultural or like linguistic background, this gender pronoun thing can feel like why first of all are we using gender pronouns so much like in this language i think that can sometimes throw people off i think if possible don't be quick to judge about others uh, but focusing on ourselves as like what we can do to minimize unintentionally harming people and also what are the ways in which we can stand up for people who might be having negative experiences because of intentional or unintentional gender exclusion uh, gender exclusionary practices so miso the last question in this segment is I want to build off of that. So as we're thinking about social change and as we're thinking about cultural touchstones, catalyzing events, in your expertise and experience as an advocate who's close to gender equity communities, is there anything on the horizon that might propel this movement forward even faster than it is already going? Uh, short answer is I don't know. Um, you, you might want to cut this segment out. But... No, I, I, that's great. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's a perfectly fine answer. That's exactly what we're looking for. Nate, Jason, can you think of anything? I think Nate already spoke to this a little bit, but I would say you know the incoming generation, I guess, or just you know younger people who I think at least in the states seem to have a much broader exposure to different people because of social media. I would say it's social media is definitely a trade-off in terms of the benefits that you get from it and the negative externalities and the consequences that you get from it. But I would say benefit from it is that it's a lot easier to keep in touch and get exposed to different kinds of people with different backgrounds than just your own, if that was what you were going to use social media to do. So I would say, yeah, a lot of younger folks seem to already know a lot more about things than I knew when I was their age. And comparably, I know a lot more about things than some of the other people on this call than they did when they were my age. So it'll keep going like that and hopefully continue to move in the correct direction. I would second everything Jason just said and also like just sort of reiterate that technology not only like is a reflection of this conversation that we're having and of like a need for accessibility in technology, but it can also be a facilitation tool, right? Like technology facilitates access to information that builds emotional intelligence and perspective taking as long as said technology is offered in a way that is in and of itself accessible, right? So circling back to a point I made in our first episode together is we can't just assume that people understand how to use that technology. But if people learn how to use their technology with a critical eye, rather than just like doom scrolling through a Twitter feed and reading a lot of hot takes, they can use that same technology to watch YouTube videos in which people speak openly about their experiences as members of marginalized communities or to read articles that have been written, you know, countless articles about all of these different facets of identity and recognizing the limitations of language in that process, right? 
just in the past, I would say five to 10 years, we've seen the LGBTQ community go from using the moniker LGBTQ to expanding that to LGBTQIA to S to now LGBTQ plus. And I think that process, watching that as a member of said community has helped me to recognize that there's going to be continuing evolutions and it may sometimes feel hard to keep up with what the most current trend is. And as a result, we should focus on A, avoiding speaking in generalities as much as we can, because that's how we reinforce our own biases and just giving each individual as much autonomy as possible to identify themselves, right? Because the language I might choose to use, sometimes I feel uncomfortable about the fact that I, as a gay man, am lumped into the same community as trans Americans when my experience is so different from theirs, right? We're considered by broader society to be part of the same community, but our lived experiences are vastly different from one another's, right? So just focusing in on how each individual has their own story and their own way to identify themselves and just showing each person respect in each interaction as best you can. With that, Mr. Jason and Nate and Ms. Misa, thank you so much. We're going to move on to our final segment, a bit of a lightning round here, but we ask the same three questions to all of our guests. So are you ready for your three questions? So I'm going to start with you, Nate, then go to Jason and then Miso, and then we'll swing it back around. First question, what is one personal accommodation that you make? I know it's a lightning round. Can you clarify what you mean by an accommodation in this? Absolutely. So what we're looking for here, and it is in the broadest sense, is something that you might do to make accessing information, whether at work or personally, a little bit easier. Easier for my, yourself or easier for others or for both? Well, that's a great question. You could take it either direction you wanted to, but I'm going to say for yourself is the way that it was intended when we structured it. But if you have something more important to offer, then feel free to answer both sides of that coin. My answer to this question from one of our earlier episodes, just for reference, Neat, I said, I'm very distracted by sounds. So I invested in like soundproof glass in the office when we built it out so that I could have a quiet workspace. <laughs> there you go. Okay. That all makes perfect sense. And I'm glad I got that clarification. My, my first instinct was, well, it might be an answer that Jason's going to use. So you're not going to use that answer? Okay, never mind. Then I will use that answer. It's actually not for myself, it is for others. And actually Miso comes to mind because Miso is the person who sort of taught me to do this, which is Facebook's algorithms are not great in terms of describing visually what are in images that you upload. And so I've become more aware and more active in when I upload a photo to a social media platform, providing a short description in my caption of what I intended to show in that photo so that whoever is viewing my photos, if they have a visual disability, is still able to access the information in the photo. And that right there, Mr. Nate, is why you got straight A's in school. That was an unbelievably on-the-nose answer. Well done. Mr. Jason, how about you? So I initially dramatically misinterpreted this question when you first said it and when I thought about what my answer was going to be. So my answer initially does not apply. My second answer, which was my backup answer, is what Nate said, because Nate, after (laughs) being instructed about it from Miso, then showed it to me. And I think that I started adding picture descriptions to my images as well. Man, now I got to think about a different third answer. (laughs) Could be like... Go with your first answer. I'm very curious. No, no I... my first answer was that I really misinterpreted what your, what your question was. And so I thought it was like something that you were doing to better like society or something. So I was like, I'm a vegan. So that is sort of 
you know, trying to help with the environment and stuff. That's not really what you meant when you said that. So that's not the answer I'm going to go with. Misa, you want to jump in while Jason and I brainstorm for him? (laughs) This is Misa. And so for others, one thing that I've been learning a lot in my current work were large segment of population that, you know, I interact with, albeit like most indirectly for the most part, is folks with intellectual disability. So I've been learning a lot about plain language summary, meaning, you know, when we put out like a webinar on complex topics or like when we talk about like some policy or something, rather than using all the jargons and lots of acronyms, I'm putting kind of one page, sometimes longer, but uh, basically a summary of whatever topic, you know, that is written I think at most like ninth grade level, I think typically, yeah, like it's like intended to be like accessible for our middle school reading level. Um, However you define that, that's something I've been learning a lot. And now I'm really mindful of like when I write, just noticing, wow, dang, like I don't need to be using these words. Yeah. So that's one. In terms of like personal What do I do for myself? I think that can be an episode in itself, in large part because I'm a blind person and I live in a world that's designed for sighted people. But one simple thing that comes to mind as I speak is whenever I move to like a new apartment or something, I put a little like dot markers in on my microwave, like washer or like an oven to kind of indicate like mostly like flat buttons so that I know like where the buttons that I want to press. That's phenomenal. I want to have an episode around that. (laughs) More of that, Miso. Thank you. All right, Jason. I I did. Yeah, I did think of an answer. My answer is that I would say four years ago, I read an article by Tristan Harris that was talking about the colors that the web uses in order to keep you on your phone for longer and whether or not that was True or not, I still decided to take the article at face value and I switched my phone to be in black and white and it's been in black and white for the past four years. And I like to think that has contributed to me having less screen time, whether that is true or not, unclear. I also about a year ago added like time limits to a lot of the applications that I use the most like Instagram or words with friends or the news, doom scrolling on the news app. So, you know, I can only doom scroll for like 10 minutes and then I get kicked off until tomorrow. So those things. Jason, if we ever happen to find ourselves in the same location, let's say the Poconos, you're going to have to show me how to make my phone black and white. I absolutely want to try that out. For sure, yeah. I have since switched from Android to Apple and you can decide whether that's the good switch or the bad switch, but I know how to do it on both systems. Feel free to call me up and I I can help you with that. Awesome. All right. Second question. What is something about the world that keeps you up at night? Miso, you go first. Yeah. Right now at this moment, I do worry about COVID, but I think that answer might've been different in non-pandemic times, but I, yeah, that's something I do worry about at night at times. Jason, what about you? COVID is definitely something that, that keeps me up at night. I would say less acutely than that. Just as somebody that works, you know, in tech, I think 
the real unknowns of the effects of technology on people that are six and have a, an iPad or a tablet or people that I think, you know, Nate and Miso and I are probably some of the last folks that really grew up and had, you know, a large chunk of our childhood or all of our childhood and beyond not really having technology at all. Um, you know, I didn't get a phone until I was like 14. And I think that's obviously still a crazy answer for people that are older than me, but people that are younger than me probably have had a phone for much longer than that. And definitely a phone that could do more than just call my mom, which was what my phone did. So yeah, I don't know, you know, however many years from now, what those effects will look like on the children of today. Ah, my boyfriend once again stealing my answer here, but uh, I think I'll actually kind of bridge the gap between the two and say sort of more of an intermediate, something that's keeping me up at night is still not knowing what the long-term effects of the past year will be on the kids that I work with. You know, we were back together in person for about a month at the end of the school year. So I got to know my students from last year in person a little bit. And just in that little bit of time, I saw issues arising that I had never seen before in a classroom. And to think about approaching them next year at scale over the course of a full school year is a little daunting at this moment in time. But I know educators being who we are, we will take it in stride. Well said. So final question. We'll go in reverse order to give Miso the final word. Nate, you've given us some book recommendations already in our previous episode, and we've talked about articles and other things, but I'm looking for a new recommendation of a game, a book, a movie, a TV show, whatever it is, give us something that we should be interacting with. I have been consuming far too much media in the past year, so I could recommend any number of things right now. And I'm trying to think what would be most valuable for like listeners of this podcast. So I'm actually going to give two. I'm going to give one that's along the lines of what we've been discussing, and then I'll give one that's like separate and just for fun. Along the lines of what we've been discussing, there's a show that is new on HBO. It's called Generation. It does not have a lot of viewership to my knowledge, so they could use the viewers, but it's the first show that's being... The head writer is, I believe, 19 years old. And so the show has a very youthful voice. It addresses a lot of the issues we've been talking about, particularly around gender inclusivity from a young perspective as a result. There's a lot of very mature content in there. So if that bothers you, maybe don't view it, but it also could be eye-opening for folks to see sort of how this is being discussed by young people today. An irrelevant, but always fun recommendation, a book I just recently finished by one of my favorite authors who historically has been a kid's author, but is starting to write for adults. His name is John Green. He wrote an essay collection called The Anthropocene Reviewed, which is a series of essays in which he rates like different human odd creations as though they were Yelp reviews on a five-star scale so he'll talk about anything from like the nathan's hot dog eating contest to you know like the city of indianapolis just uses those as ways of giving lenses into his own life and experiences so great beach read easy breezy and fun this is jason i will give you two options it can be a choose your own adventure of kind of the the two different ways that I engage with things. I think all of the books I read are very much not escapist and many of them are actually pretty sad. And then I would say that the TV shows I watch are largely very escapist and they are mostly happy. So the TV shows that I watch, and I don't watch many TV shows, but I have watched The Great Pottery Throwdown, which is basically the same thing as The Great British Bake Off, except with pottery. And then there's something called Making It, where they make stuff like... (laughs) 
I don't know, little household items and whatnot. It's hosted by Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, and it's very wholesome. So those are two very wholesome options. On the book front, I would recommend anything by Nicole Dennis-Ben, which is only two things because she's only written two novels so far, but hopefully a third one soon. Um, So she wrote Here Comes the Sun, which is my favorite book. It came out a few years ago, and then she wrote Patsy as her second book, and that one came out about a year or two ago. Marty is nodding his head on screen because I gave him both of them. (laughs) Whether he read them in the past two years is up to him. I know those books. I know right where they are. Miso, why don't you bring us home with one recommendation or you can follow Nate and Jason and give us two or more recommendation for a game, a book, a movie, a TV show, whatever you've got that we should be interacting. It's a high pressure and it's kind of out of topics from what we've been thinking about, talking about. I mean, in large part because my brain can't think right now. So one, I recently finally went and watched In the Heights in the movie theater for the first movie since the pandemic in the movie theater. Yeah, and just really enjoyed the music and the storyline and everything. And um, in terms of like one of the most recently read books is Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. And I guess it kind of relates to like my Korean American identity. I mean, it speaks a lot to kind of specifically in Japan during the time when Japan was occupying Korea and uh, kind of just portraying the generation of Korean families of living in Japan. Yeah, but that thick book to my younger brother, which I've been told is just sitting in my parents' house on his desk. So not that with, but so I'll recommend it to all the listeners of the podcast. Miso, Nate, Jason, thank you so much. We could have made this into a five-part series. So I, for one, very much look forward to listening to the new podcast by the three of you that will come out sometime soon, I hope. Uh, but in the meantime, I just want to share my appreciation for spending so much time with us and sharing so much insight and and diving into all of these wonderful topics. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you all, and stay tuned for Double Dare That Whammy. Thank you, and let's wait for the show. I second that. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you. If you like what you heard today and want to explore more about digital accessibility, inclusivity, or to schedule a time to talk with us, you can find the whole Tamman team at tamaninc.com. That's T-A-M-M-A-N-I-N-C dot com. Or follow us on social media at Tamman Inc. on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We'll talk to you again next time.